This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we talk to Bruce Allen. He's an educator, health worker, and survivor of residential schools. He joined the Shift to give us perspective on what it was like growing up in a family that went through generations of abuse at the hands of residential school system. He shares what he's learned and how he embarks on the journey of healing and helps others. He tells the Shift what Canadians need to do now. Ryan Recker popped in to say hello from KMOX in St. Louis. It's been a few weeks now since Ryan has left his nighttime show and gone to the daytime show. We talk about Canada and the U.S. reopening, a little bit of politics, and catch up. And also, are you okay with diving? There's alligators and shark teeth involved. Just saying. Are you okay? Are you okay with some eye-opening Canadian perspective? Oh, we're wow. going there? Yeah. I need some. Okay. If, hey, if, yeah. if that's where you want to take this, let's do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready. Give Strap on. Let's do it. I need it. So imagine a few years ago where we were. Let's just say five years ago. Okay. okay. What was life like five years ago? You know? And then this is the perspective. We've been through a pandemic and a whole lot of things. This is where we are today. To those living in Ontario, Canada, did you ever think the day would come when you'd be smoking weed at a family gathering and the family gathering was the illegal part? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oof. That's a brain hit to the brain. Uh, yeah. Whoa. Damn. Okay, so there's eye-opening perspective for you at a family gathering in most places, not just Ontario. That was from TikTok, by the way. That the most illegal thing about your smoking weed at a family gathering is not the weed. It's the fact that you're with family. That is crazy notion. Uh, 877-399-9898. Um, is there anything else out there that you find strange that's acceptable today that was not acceptable Three years ago or five years ago or even pre-pandemic, it's it's kind of mind-blowing. Man, oh, man. Anyway, oh, I have uh, one. very good point. What's up? Uh, dancing and sharing it online. Like, if you oh, weren't yeah, a dancer, right. you would never share that content. But now people make thousands of dollars by just posting a video of them moving their arm in a certain way while bobbing their head on mm -hmm. TikTok. That is complete. Like Vine was, you know, five years ago, that was the app, you know, Vine and, uh, and that would, people had six seconds. So they would make comedy sketches or stuff like that. But now it's dancing and it, that, that's a weird thing for me online for sure. So there was those, you would take a picture of yourself and there was like those dancing elves at Christmas time. I don't know what they were called. They were, it was like a send a Christmas card of, and it'd be, if I took a picture of Brendan and Ryan and me and I put them up, there would be three elves with our heads on them and they would be dancing. Well, my buddy Daryl uh, showed me an app that he has where you just take your picture and you put it on there and then you choose the song. And what it does is it has a, it superimposes somebody else's mouth where your mouth is. But then the eyes look to the left and look to the right and it's a bit of a pre, set thing and it sings a song you upload a picture into your phone and then it creates a video of you singing a song and it moves your eyes around even though it looks like somebody else's mouth and you can pick anything and it'll just do it it's the weirdest thing that mm. also was not a thing five years ago what song would you nope. sing 
I don't know. You just pick. I didn't. I don't pick a yeah, song, no, man. no, no. I'd probably pick like, um, like more than a woman or something funny. I mean, that's yeah. what I would do. Yeah, me too. Probably something funny. Yep. Maybe Salt and Pepper push it. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> push it real good. All right. Before we get started with the next, are you okay? Let's just get this out of context clip. <laughs> I have my first two albums that I did. This is my first album, I Saw Tiger, and this is my second album, Starstruck. I saw Tiger, now I understand. I saw Tiger, Tiger Summit. Oh, it's been a while since I've heard that man's voice. That has been. Um, all right. The lineup for an upcoming adaptation of Netflix's hit documentary series is getting better by the minute. Are you okay? Are you okay with the Tiger King? You know, here's the thing. I never saw it. I never no. saw really? it. This is, what oh. I, this is what I do. I don't like when things are super huge into the pop culture psyche of the moment i never see them till about five years later i'm about five years behind the world so catch up with me in five years and i'll tell you what i think of tiger king oh it's worth it you should watch it's it. it's really worth it. It, it and it's not just like for the the memes or anything like it's genuinely a fascinating documentary mm-hmm. and a look at one of the weirdest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth i'm okay with the documentary i i am not okay with joe exotic himself Cause he's he's terrible <laughs> and yeah. crazy. There's a lot. There was a lot of things there that were not okay. Well, there is this upcoming. There's a couple of different versions, by the way, of things coming out about the Tiger King. This particular one from Netflix has this guy joining the cast. The superstorm will last seven to ten days. When it's over, ice and snow will cover the entire northern hemisphere. The ice and snow will reflect sunlight. The Earth's atmosphere will restabilize, but with an average temperature close to that of the last ice age. What can we do about this? Head as far south as possible. The cast of Joe Exotic, which is coming exclusively to Peacock. Uh, Quaid will be playing reality show producer Rick Kirkham who was featured prominently in the Netflix series. He was the guy that was hired to sort of do the, the, the life day in the life of the tiger King every day. He was recording all this stuff. They were going to make this amazing show and he followed him around. And he was the guy that lost all the footage and equipment in the crocodile or alligator house fire. Cause that in the back down, behind, yeah. yeah, behind the crocodiles or alligators, that was the production studio. <laughs> That's a sentence. Yeah. So here's an interview with Kirkham from Inside Edition. The man was very cruel. He's a very cruel and evil person. Kirkham was a key figure in the hit docuseries. But back in the 1990s, he was a reporter here at Inside Edition. I've had a chance to experience some pretty wild and crazy things. Well known for his daring exploits. He and I still keep in touch. Les, it's great to see you as usual. Are you surprised by the impact of the Netflix series? It's just insane. I'm in Oslo, Norway, and I walk down the street and people stop their cars and point out the window going, are you Tiger Rick? Kirkham says one reaction to the TV show that's taken him by surprise is that so many viewers actually feel sorry for Joe Exotic. The documentary really portrayed the fact that he had an evil heart. 
uh, the, the part they got wrong was in any way making making the audience feel sorry for this man. Joe Exotic is now serving 22 years for plotting to kill animal rights activist Carol Baskin. Kirkham says he's bewildered by any suggestion of a presidential pardon, which came up last week at a briefing on the pandemic. I'll take a look. Is that Joe Exotic? That's Joe Exotic. First of all, the reporter would ask the president about pardoning uh, uh, Joe Exotic. And secondly, that he would actually even think about and consider it. Uh, it's, it's just ludicrous. But awesome. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> it's so insane. So Dennis Quaid, I can totally see him doing that. And he doing looks that like voice him. And doing, he does look like him. But who who's playing the big names here? In like this one? Characters. Yeah. Um, okay, well, Joe Exotic's going to focus on the story from the perspective of Carol Baskin, this air quotes Joe Exotic, the big cat enthusiast. She was just on Dancing with the Stars now. <laughs> like, what is this world we live in, really? Um, so she has her own exotic animal park, and her husband went missing, and they all think that she fed her ex-husband to the tigers. All right. Uh, they were breeding cats, basically, is what it boils down to. The cast is amazing. Kate McKinnon. We'll play Carol Baskin. That's perfect. Huh. Perfect. <laughs> John Cameron Mitchell uh, will play Joe Exotic in this version. It was recently announced that Brian Van Holt will play John Reinke. Sam Ke- uh, Keeley will play Joe Finley. And Nat Wolf will play Travis Maldonado. Now, there's a couple of husbands of Joe Exotic in this storyline, too. It's going to be interesting to see. What happens now? This isn't the one Ryan with that was supposed to have Nick Cage in it, was it? No, is that different? no. This one's going to Peacock, which means I have no idea how we'll be able to watch it in Canada. Maybe Netflix, uh, but this one's going to NBC's streaming service in the states, and I believe Nick Cage is involved in either a miniseries or a movie. But I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that adaptation will be the best one. Because it has Nicolas Cage as Joe Exotic. Absolutely. Absolutely it Um, does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's an Amazon. There it it is. Yeah. It's an Amazon version. Amazon's got its own TV. Oh, somebody did a deep fake and put Nicolas Cage's face on Joe Exotic's head and it's terrifying. (laughs) 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 Oh, it's going to be perfect. Are you okay, Brennan? You got to do this. You got to like watch one episode, please. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Are you okay? Are you okay with diving? Yeah, I became quite good at it at my uh, little dolphin trainer job. Um, didn't know how to do it beforehand and uh, learned on the job, as I did with many things at that job. And I became okay. quite the good diver. Nice. I thought quite there was going to be more to the story. Like, uh, I was once a lifeguard, and or I was an Olympic diver at some point. I was an Olympic diver, too. Yeah, I was on the last <laughs> Canadian Olympic diving team as well. Nice. Yeah. Pulls a gold medal out of his jacket. I do like diving. It's fun. Yeah, I don't yeah, think I'm, I'm very terrible graceful. at it. I'm like the tip over diver that over rotates. Could never really do the backflips or anything like that. Was not oh, very yeah, good. No, I, I can't do those. No, flat on my face. It wasn't very good. I was more of like a you know, prayer hands diver, where you put the hands out. 
<laughs> and then it yeah. sort of fall off the diving board. Yeah. I did a lot of belly flops when I was learning, but I, I got there eventually. So were you like swimming with the dolphins? Yeah, I was right in there. There's photos and I'm in documentaries that, well, they don't necessarily are flattering to the former place that I work now, these documentaries that I'm in, but mm-hmm. I'm in them and you see me really? and I dive so and I'm with them. You swim with the dolphins? You like jump swam off their with, noses? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, swam with the dolphins, jumped off their rostrums, they were called, which is actually really, wow. really bad for them. But I did that, yeah. Oh, <laughs> but I did it. I didn't so know the big- at the time. I didn't know. I mean, this is what happens. These places hire people that don't have like scientific backgrounds. They hired me out of the sound booth and like I was on stage <laughs> with actors and other things too. And then it, it takes us longer to realize how bad it is. Like scientific people last right. like a day. Right. So did you love it? Was it cool? That's cool. <laughs> I loved it as it was happening, as I was like a young 23-year-old, but looking back on it now, it's like, no, that was awful. It was an awful place. Mm. Yeah. But people go like to Mexico and they pay to meet a dolphin. Yeah. And you were like every day, you were like, hey, Stevie, how's your flipper? Yeah, but like Stevie with their injured flipper, I was pumping them full of drugs every morning too. It's not, yeah. Whoa. Oh, hey, buddy. Good luck meeting your dad. Um. Okay. Wow. That just anyway diving. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want. I kind of want to keep talking about this. This is amazing. Hey. Holy I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I should really keep talking about it. These yeah. places have lawyers. All right. Fair enough. Are you okay with diving? Going for a dive in a pool is one thing, but diving in Florida waters is a whole other beast. A wait for it. Florida man. <laughs> If it weren't for Florida, we could not do Are You Okay? It's just no, that simple. No, it's 50% of Are You Okay's at least. A Florida man is still recovering in hospital after getting bit in the head by a gator while diving for shark teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's got to be the most Florida headline yeah. ever. That is. Ever. That is. By a long uh, shot. Okay, but his injury has led to an amazing discovery. <laughs> of course it would. Here's more from NBC2. So this is all 34 stitches. Staples. It ripped it off his head and most of his head as well. When diving for fossils, Michael Stab knows you have to be careful. Every time you enter the water, you're taking a risk. And, uh, you know, that this is not the season to be in the water with gators. So when a fellow fossil hunter, Jeff Heim, was attacked while diving for shark teeth, Mike decided to help him out by looking for his camera lost in the attack, with the hope that it captured the moment the gator struck. He said he lost his GoPro out there, and we knew they had pulled the gator out, so I knew it was actually one of the safest spots on the river to dive, in my opinion. Unfortunately, he never found it. But what he did find was a fossil he never expected. I pulled out a whale tooth and I pulled out another one and they matched. They looked associated. And I started just fanning the sand in that area. And I started seeing them sticking up in pattern. And I realized I had an entire jaw. Well into the night, he and friends pulled out a total of 20 intact teeth and pieces of a jaw. Remains of what paleontologists are calling a sperm whale. Probably in the general range of Somewhere between four and eight million years old. Oh. <laughs> How does a sperm whale jaw wind up in a river in Florida? That must have not been. 
four million years ago. Maybe it was part of the ocean, wasn't a river, I guess, eh? Yeah, it's got to be, right? What an that's insane. Well, I hope I hope he gets to keep the teeth. Uh, well, the teeth are in a uh, cooler in Mike's garage at the moment because why wouldn't they be? <laughs> <laughs> but here, so he got the stitches and then he went back in because the no, gator was no. gone. A friend, so, so another a fellow diver. This guy is still in like recovering at home with a giant bandage on his head. And a fellow mm. diver heard the story because it went viral and went, I'm going to go find his GoPro and instead found teeth that are millions of years old, which is cooler okay, than so, shark teeth. I mean, I love you. You're great. You're a good friend. But the reality is if you go into the Bow River in Calgary and a crocodile bites you in the head where you have 34 staples, I'll just buy you a new GoPro. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably, I would prefer that. I don't want no gator biting my friend. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last week, we as Canadians have heard many dreadful stories that have um, caused us to take a pause. These stories are concerning, confusing, unknown, unfamiliar, and all kinds of things. And for, for Canadians... As a white kid, I um, it bothers me, and I get tangled up in that a little bit. Then there's perspective of residential schools. What about the people who went to them? I mean, if I think that this story from Kamloops bothers me, what about some of the kids who went to them and uh, and have stories of their own? And that that's where we're going with this conversation. Bruce Allen joins me now. Bruce is in Prince George. He is a residential school survivor. That's how you put it, Bruce. Yeah. Um, are you okay? How's are you? How's your heart? Are you okay? Last week's been hard, man. Oh yeah, it's um, it's not a surprise, but yes, the response has been overwhelming for the most part. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's something new. And I think it's something that's going to be in in our lives for years to come. Because that's one school. There was 130 schools uh, across Canada. So yeah. we're going to, you know, every once in a while, there's going to be a school that's found bodies. Yeah. Well, it seems like inevitable, right? Like uh, from, if I can assume your perspective a little bit, you went to residential school, you, you've come out of it. You, you're, you, you teach a college, you work as a health support worker in the summertime. I mean, so you, you've, you've tried to fill in some of the holes that other people have experienced through all of this. At the same time, you must have known that this was inevitable, kind of good from a perspective, because at least, you know, forgive the easy language, the truth comes out, but also terrible, yes. absolutely dreadful and terrible. So it must be a bit of a swirl of experience for you. I've been working with residential schools. I guess I can start out by saying that my healing began when I was born because my grandmother on my mom's side attended the residential school that I attended in 1922. And my father attended Lee Jack from 
1949. So he was at the same school that I attended. But he also attended the Kamloops Indian Residential School because at that time, at that time, in order to get a grade 12, um, First Nations people weren't allowed in public schools. So he got sent down to Kamloops because they had the residential school there that went to grade 12. Wow. And he graduated in 1954. So uh, the residential school experience has been very much part of my life. Um, My father never spoke of his experiences, but he definitely showed it. Mm. And that showing of it came out in being a chain smoker, uh, being a weekend binge drinker, start on a Friday, finish on a Sunday, go to work Monday, um, spend all the money on booze. And so basically, even though he had a good job, we lived in abject poverty yeah. uh, because of it. Well, I, I, I brought that up on the shift this week, and there are all kinds of stereotypes about First Nations folks and drinking. And I even said, well, just insert this into the storyline now. I mean, I come home from work from a hard day and I have a drink because, you know, oh, I could really use a drink today. And there's been so much judgment that's been put on all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds without knowing the stories of what they've been through. And when you share that story about your dad, I only bring this up to acknowledge the fact for everybody listening that even the stereotypes that have been often inaccurate, um, that uh, th- these are people's lives and there's things behind it too, right? And and and, and I, I, I speak to that not of a place of judgment, Bruce, but just matter-of-factly of some of the storylines that go on from my friends that are First Nations folks that they've told me. And I hope that's okay because I don't want to cross any disrespect lines when I bring it up, but it, it is a common stereotype that's out there. And this is evidence of some of the reasons why people have been through the things they've been through. Yeah. Um, yeah. His life was very short because uh, when he was 44, we, some of his children were living with him. He became a, a single parent because my mom left him. And if she hadn't, like, if she didn't leave him, she wouldn't be alive today. Uh, the domestic violence with him was escalating. Um, it was becoming more and more violent. And if she didn't leave, she wouldn't have um, survived. Um, but after she left, uh, he tended to settle down, but uh, the drinking was still there. And um, it eventually took him because um, one Friday night, Saturday morning, he was he decided that he was going to walk home. And um, the coroner's, report says that his blood alcohol was 0.25. And so um, the, the the pub that he was at is exactly five kilometers from my home. And he got exactly halfway uh, before Froze. before he was uh, struck and killed by struck. Um, a pickup truck heading west. And vehicles were coming from the west, so they couldn't see my dad on the road. And the driver was my cousin. And so, oh no. And so, um, that started years of anger and hatred towards that family. And, uh, it wasn't until 
1992, I, I um, came across an, an indigenous uh, therapist counselor from the Stalo Nation out at Chilliwack, and he came to our community and um, did some residential school workshops. And so that's that really opened um, my eyes because, you know, why did my dad, why was my dad on the road? Because he drank. And then, okay, why did he drink? That was the bigger, the bigger question. And it, it all pointed to his experiences at the residential school because he never spoke of it. And for good reason. And uh, uh, he was brutally assaulted physically and sexually at Lee Jack. And he wasn't the only one. It was uh, most of the kids that attended um, were subjected to that. And so, you know, at that time, it was very shameful to talk about sexual abuse. And in the 1990s, that was when people really started to to come out and it's it, this um, awakening with the Kamloops residential schools reminds me of that time when people really, you know, started to talk about it. They were just starting to talk about it. And so, um, yeah, uh, Bill Muscle helped our community out, but to really, um, when, when he said, when you look at our people, 100% are alcohol, alcoholic or dr on drugs uh, if they attended the residential school. And he said, the alcohol and the drugs is only a symptom yeah. of what is really going on. And so that really opened my eyes and got me to thinking. I, I did eventually um, talk to my cousin and I went to him and I said, uh, I forgive you for what happened it was an accident i i can no longer blame you and it, it's up to you to forgive yourself and to um you know accept what happened and move on and we you know we got really close uh, we played ball together we played hockey uh we bowled and you know that that and, you know i still see him around so there's you know Forgiveness is huge when it comes to healing. And that really worked in my favor. But, um, yeah, my dad's experiences, I learned more about it when I um, was able to listen to stories of survivors. And a lot of my dad's peers from the Jack were doing... Um, were seeking compensation from the government. And in order to get compensation, they had to tell their story. And I was there as a support person. And I was able to sit in their hearings. And um, I know that whatever they were subjected to, my dad was not immune to. So they spoke of the brutal physical assaults and the brutal sexual assaults that happened to them. And I'm pretty sure my dad had the same things happened to him so that was healing because he never spoke of it and for me that was um, very helpful and if i i don't um 
Sorry, I, I yeah. thought you were finished. My apologies. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to have this conversation, Bruce. I really don't. Like, I spent a lot of time thinking about: Do I ask, you know, for forgiveness? Do I offer um, gratitude for your work? Do what do I do? Do I say I'm sorry? Like, I, as Canadians, I don't know. We were never taught this stuff, right? And I grew up in Fort McMurray, and so there's Fort Mackay and there's Anzac right there. And there was guys that I played hockey with, um, and God, they were fun. And But they didn't come to hockey all the time. And so we were around it, but we didn't know the stories of what residential schools were. We didn't learn that. And I think Canadians in general don't know how to go about having this conversation. So I thought about it, and I thought, okay, well, what do I do? How do what do we talk about? What do I ask Bruce? And then it just it sort of just occurred to me that I just need to say, Bruce, I don't know how to have this conversation. I really don't. And what that raised for me is the question to ask you, especially because of knowing that, you know, as a regional health support worker for residential school survivors, Bruce, how do we have this conversation to a point where, I mean, it was never in front of me, but it's our responsibility as Canadians to acknowledge it. So how do we have this conversation? I would say learn learn more about it. I'm sure there's, um, I know Alberta has a lot of residential schools, some of them still standing. Um, learn about the history of it. When did it start and when did it close and which um, nations attended uh, those schools and the capacity. I know at Lejack it was 100 boys and 100 girls every year from 1922 to 1976 when it closed. So um, there was that many children that that attended, but not all of them would, would were able to return home. Some of them died from sickness or died from the physical abuse or died from starvation at the at the school. So I'm you know when I'm talking about the Jack, I've heard hundreds of stories about the Jack from um, elders who have passed on already. Uh, they shared stories when they went to school in 1922 and in, all the way throughout. And some years were quite brutal um, in terms of their treatment. And um, yeah, and there's uh, when you when you look at the Catholic Church uh, in where I come from here um, in 1994, a bishop that was here in Prince George was convicted of um, sexual assaults on children from the Williams Lake Residential School, Hubert O'Connor. And, you know, it, it gets swept under the rug. Um, you know, that should be shocking for people in Prince George. But it, it wasn't. It's still, you know, um, who's, you know, you can't say it's not still happening. Um, another bishop, uh, Fergus O'Grady, was the principal at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Probably at the time, some of these children were buried. Mm. And, you know, so he's received an honorary degree from from UBC. And so a lot of people are starting to say, hey, uh, let's strip this guy's honorary degree 
um, even though he's already uh, dead and gone, but you know, still his legacy shouldn't, that shouldn't be his legacy. His legacy is those 215 uh, children. What happened? What happened when kids didn't come home? There's been a lot of speculation as a guy who didn't live through this from the outside and say, okay, so a hundred boys and a hundred girls went to Lee Jack in your story case. Um, and okay. So what if only 90 came home? Um, Is that, is it true or that, that the family just didn't ever know what happened. And then all the friends were like, little Billy just didn't come, didn't come to school tomorrow. Like, is that what happened? That's, um, parents didn't find out until the end of June when children would be coming home and then their child didn't come home and the kids would tell them, oh, he died at school. And, And the principal and the church wouldn't tell the parents, right? And sometimes kids, when they got home from the residential school, didn't know that their parents died or some family members died and they got back. So there's lots of stories like that. There's lots of stories of um, children being killed right at at the school from supervisors. But there's many horrific stories um, that were told uh, during the compensation process, but also during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings. Uh, Lots of horrific stories. And uh, uh, every... You know, if you count the hundred girls, hundred boys, each one, of, each one of them have a story, mm-hmm. right? And some of them didn't get to tell it. Well, I can't, uh, I can't help but uh, come to this point now. I mean, just we just heard a little laughter in the background. You're, you're a dad. You have a family. Um, so even as you and I are sitting here having this conversation, here you are surrounded by your favorite people, right? Um, now, as your, um, as your, as a dad. Your kids, I'm assuming, did not go to any residential school at, when they went to school. What's that moment like for you when you see that at least that part of the cycle has has changed? Is is that pretty amazing as a dad to to go? All right, this is different now. This is getting better. Yeah, I I don't have to worry about them. You know, uh, getting hurt at school. Um, I'm pretty sure my dad went through that because he experienced it and uh, my experience wouldn't wouldn't be as severe because i wasn't i I say incarcerated uh, because i wasn't i didn't have to stay at the school i was a day scholar what is um, known as a day scholar because uh, my home was only 10 kilometers away and we got bussed in every day and we got to go home every day but um the kids that were there um for 10 months, at, at the very least 10 months of the year, 24-7, um, they didn't like that. They didn't like seeing that we got to go home. And so they treated us accordingly. So it was, it, in that sense, it was quite brutal. But I, I would say that my father saved me from uh, one supervisor in particular, uh, he got the idea, okay, let's go to the Lee Jack School. I want to introduce you to a supervisor, or I want to introduce you to the supervisors. And I said, uh, it's Saturday. I don't want to go to that school on a Saturday. And he said, nope, we're going. And um, when he brought us there, he went straight 
to the supervisor by the name of uh, Edward Fitzgerald. Um, and Edward Fitzgerald, um, <clears throat> my dad must have known uh, that uh, he was a pedophile, and he is. Um, yeah, and he. was in the care of six to eight-year-old boys in the dormitory. So he was, they were under his care. And uh, so he had access to them 24-7, 30 kids in his care, 30 boys. And many of them were sexually abused by him. But uh, I can remember my dad going straight to him and I uh, was beside him and he said, this is my son. And then I, as a kid, I, I just ran off and went to play. But uh, my dad had a long conversation with him, and I'm pretty sure it uh, probably had went something like, uh, if he touched my son, I'm going to uh, come here with my gun and take you out. Wow. Yeah. Um, what, what, does, um, what does healing look like for residential school survivors? Oh. Um, I think it's um, it's all individual. You have to make up your mind. I made up my mind um, that I was going to learn more about it, and I did, and talk to more people um, to learn about it and what what you know what happened, uh, the reasons for the school being put in place, and all of that is. Um, it's a huge learning experience, and so I encourage everybody to to learn something about residential schools. Um, whether you read up on it on Facebook or um, go to the local university, I'm sure, I'm sure they have courses on um, the First Nations experiences with with residential schools. But healing is is very individual, um, and for myself, it, that's you know. Um, going to conferences, going to workshops, uh, talking to facilitators, counselors, therapists, elders, traditional healers. Uh, all of those things helped me out. And, and talking to my my peers, the ones that are left anyways, there's, um, there's a few of us left. And it's sad to say that there's many others that have passed on because they couldn't cope with uh, what had happened to them at the school. But I'd say individually, uh, you have to make up your own mind. Um, but uh, uh, having other people uh, to look up to, the ones that have already done it, you know, following their steps um, and, and speaking your own truth, telling uh, telling your own stories. I think that's really important in and the healing, and and we're going to be hearing lots, a whole lot more stories um, because of Kamloops. So, if we turn off the audience for a second and just, I mean, I I propose to you, Bruce, that's kind of just you know, beers by a campfire kind of conversation in this. So, thank you for giving me that. But if we were sitting face to face right now, and we're about to say good night. I would um, I would say this to you, Bruce. So I want I want to I want to really be there. 
I would say, Bruce, what can I do? I mean, tell me what I can do, Bruce, because th- that's what people need to know, and that's what I I need. That's what I need to know from Bruce. Is like, what can I do for Bruce? What can I do for you? Um, like you said, um, learn about learn about the schools. How did that start? It started with the Canadian government. Um, you know, wanting to control Aboriginal people, and so they partnered up with the the churches to um, start these schools. And our kids, you know, these kids were hostages basically because um, parents were never allowed to go near live near the school. Uh, they kept them away. The further the further away, the better. And so, yeah, they had complete control. The government gave the churches complete control over how uh, the children were treated. The government said it was okay to basically beat the crap out of all the kids and, and rape them and kill them. And that's what they did. So learn, uh, Bruce, learn more. Learn more about it. I will learn more. Yeah. That's where, that's where we start. Yeah. Um, Bruce Allen is in Prince George. Uh, he teaches at college in the summertime. He spends his time regional health support worker. Uh, Bruce went to Lee Jack School by Fraser Lake and um, residential school. And uh, I'm, I'm really grateful, Bruce, for you uh, taking the time to share the story and so eloquently doing it too. And um, I feel that I think one of the biggest things you've given me is sort of your peaceful heart that you carry with it uh, for yourself really translates to me that um, while there is a mountain of work to be done, I guess what comes to me is just it's time. Now it's been time for a long time, but it's, it's time. And I thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. It's the shift podcast. Let's say hello to America as America says hello to Canada. Connecting the shift and Ryan Wrecker from Overnight America via KMOX, the voice of St. Louis. You might remember him from such shows as (laughs) Ryan Wrecker and Late Night Across America and all that stuff. Uh, now he's Mr. Fancy Daytime Pants. Ryan Recker is here with us on the shift. Ryan, how are you? <laughs> so was that a Simpsons reference right off the bat? You might remember me from such radio shows as. <laughs> yeah, um, it's good. It's it's nice to have you back on the shift. Thanks for taking some time on your weekend. Now that you're a Monday to Friday uh, daytime uh, pocket protector, briefcase carrying. I don't know what it looks like for daytime radio. So I'm just making this up. How are you? Good. Yeah, it is. It's somewhat similar to that. It's not 
as formal, but it's pretty close. It's a lot different than doing a show in your basement wearing sweatpants because <laughs> that is really frowned upon inside of the workplace. And then you get to see other people, which means that you have to always wonder if the coffee is made or not. And you're probably the one that's going to make it, which is different from the house, which is guaranteed you're the one that's going to make it. But at least, you know, you're going to also be the one to drink it. And yeah. it's also weird being here on a Sunday because this is the time I'd normally be sitting down drinking my coffee, getting ready for the Sunday night show, thinking about, oh, what are we going to talk to Shane about tonight? So it is strange. It's only been a month, but it has been uh, quite a month. Ryan uh, with uh, Camel X in St. Louis moved from the nighttime show to a daytime I don't know what you call it, like a team show or a panel show, but there's there's more than just Ryan Recker. Yeah, I guess a panel show is a good way to put it. It's a collaborative effort. A, uh, it, so there's three of us on the show together and there's no namesake to the show. We call it St. Louis Talks, which means that we kind of all have to, um, you know, it's, it's almost like bumper cars in a way. We bump into each other at first. It's a little bit like going to that uh, teen dance or middle school dance, you know, a lot of awkward uh, movements at first, but we're starting to get the moves down. And it's almost like that, that ensemble cast is uh, one that takes a little bit of time to, to get into the groove of it, but being a month in, I, you know, we're all radio pros. So there's not any rookies in the mix, meaning there's no one that's hasn't done radio before, which would probably make it a lot harder. But for us, I think that kind of helped us hit the ground running. It's been good. It's also uh, strange because we have Cardinals baseball and sometimes there's day games, which means when there's day games, we don't have a show and it's weird showing up to work and not do a show. It's like you're you sit there and you drink the coffee and you think, what am I going to do today? It's different when you're working from home and you always have a show. (laughs) Yeah. So like I know that some of our channels carry NHL games and uh, sometimes our show gets preempted by we still have to do it, though. So but in your case, that means you actually don't work that day. Basically, I go in and the intention is maybe you work with some salespeople to try to talk to some clients or you might record something or really there's not a lot that goes down, though, during those days. It's it's pretty slow. But how many radio stations are you on right now? We're on eight in Canada. That's awesome. So not all of them are carrying hockey at any given time. No, Winnipeg and well, Edmonton is done. Winnipeg is still playing. And uh, those are the only markets that we have the broadcast rights uh, for the teams. Although the only two teams left in the Canadian uh, playoffs would be Montreal and Winnipeg. And Montreal is not in our broadcast area, although we have quite the listenership that it reaches up the river. But no, we don't actually broadcast there. So Montreal is considered up the river. Well, that's what I call it. It's St. Lawrence, right? Like it's east of... Uh, Ottawa, it's east of Toronto and north of Toronto, and I just call it up the river because I think it's the easiest way to describe it. <laughs> there's a lot that I have yet to learn about Canada. As long as we've been doing this, there's still a lot to learn. What's uh, what's the biggest things that have been going on in your world? You I mean you guys are taking a very hard St. Louis look, but I mean obviously national influence is still there. What's what's the big talk in the United States these days? Yeah, it's strange because during the day, we do try to stay locally focused and regionally focused as much as possible. When I was doing the night show, it was whatever was interesting to me. So there was a lot of national stories mixed in with local stories. But uh, doing a four-hour night show solo versus doing an ensemble cast for three hours, most likely four days a week because there's about one day game a week for baseball uh, changes things. But we talked to a lot of the different uh, politicians and newsmakers and movers and shakers in the area, which is kind of neat. You have to be a lot more courteous when you're talking to them. Not that I'm not courteous to begin with, but uh, it's a little bit different when, you know, you can 
look at something and criticize it versus now they're here and you have to find a tactful way to, you know, ask them about something you want to criticize. And then we talk um, really with some national stories, but always in St. Louis, a crime issue. COVID is always still a big issue. We have uh, different budgets. We have a new mayor. We have uh, different administrative changes and how they want to handle different uh, aspects of the law and crime. Then there's the, the regional aspect with Illinois. There's always going to be politicians to, uh, to look at and, and wonder and scratch your head over. So there's, there's no lack of that going on still. One of the things we've heard is that um, vaccinations have plateaued. Uh, down generally in the United States because things have been reopening. People have been doing their thing. So what what does that look like for you today in and around St. Louis? Is um, is vaccinations a thing? Are things wide open now? Is everyone wearing masks everywhere? So they decided to do a mass vaccination site in downtown St. Louis where the Rams used to play. They call it the Dome. It's basically an abandoned building right now. They, they have certain trade shows there, but really there's not any professional teams that play in it. But they still have the... Uh, the floor if they wanted to play football there with the uh, ill-fated XFL was the only, I think the last sports that was there, but they were way under. So they put that on for a couple of months and I think they had 45,000 ish uh, injections and they were hoping for an awful lot more, almost double that. So it's been a little bit slow. Now they're talking about other ways to try to get people vaccinated in St. Louis and areas that they wouldn't get vaccinated. I think we as a state are probably in the middle somewhere statistically for our percentage of the population as the United States, we're doing okay. I guess it's not the, not perfect. People aren't rushing out to it. You, I think the way to look at it is, do you remember when Tesla first came out and everyone wanted a Tesla car mm-hmm. that, and they would get on a list and they'd have to wait for it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually Tesla caught up to demand and the impression was if you wanted one of those cars, you had to wait, even though you could probably walk in and buy one if you really wanted to. But the impression was, oh, this is something you have to wait for. I think a lot of people still feel that way with the vaccine. For me, I felt it up until I said, okay, I'll just see if there's any available. And it was like, okay, come tomorrow. You can just walk in and get it. And I didn't realize how available they were. I think there's still a lot of people like that. Uh, Then there's the hesitancy side. Some people just don't want to get it. Some people don't feel the need to get it. I don't know what percentage of the population that is, but I'm sure there's always going to be holdouts farther we go back in. I think the uh, giving more freedoms as in companies aren't going to require you to wear a mask or, you know, go on a flight or go into a vacation spot, things like that. That's going to be incentive enough, I think, for a lot of the holdouts. And once they see that people aren't really getting sick from getting the shot and, you know, people are healthy after getting it, you're going to see a lot more of that. But their goal has been 70% by 4th of July. And I don't know if we'll get that. Probably not. Hmm. That's amazing. I we're we're killing it on first doses, but just not second doses. It's very similar for the most part. I mean, you were able to go up and sign up and get in, but then there was some waiting lists at pharmacies and wherever else they were doing them were the big sites. Um, but for most places here, I mean, there's still no dining, indoor restaurants and such yet. Wow. So it's interesting to see such disparity. And I was curious because one of the things that I think that uh, it's been a bit of a struggle is observing. Well, hockey games here, we're still watching hockey, and then there's fans at the teams down in the States. There's uh, just uh, the game that's on Sunday, Montreal and Winnipeg, there's 2,500 fans in Montreal. Mm. 
Uh, right. But that's that that province has opened up just a little bit more than the rest. So it's curious to watch. I was actually surprised. Uh, there was a goal scored. It was a Pittsburgh Penguins game. There was a goal scored, and all of a sudden, everyone in the stands jumped up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, there's people there. And I didn't realize it. It was the strangest thing. It wasn't like some of those sports that put in fake people. I don't know who was it yeah. the NFL that tried that or whatever. They green screened people in. And it was, you know, kind of awkward once in a while when the player would walk behind the fans or whatever because it wasn't <laughs> lined up exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird because a lot of our teams like baseball, for example, are moving towards full capacity. So you're going to have, you know, 40,000 people going out to a game here soon. I think the NFL is going to be full capacity. Baseball starting next month, at least here for the Cardinals will be full capacity, even though they're pretty limited now, but there's still a lot more than 2,500 fans in the stadium. Uh, I think the same thing will happen for hockey in the NHL. I think at least in the United States, there's not any sort of local restrictions in place or there's a backsliding. I think we'll see full capacity across the board, but it sounds like in Canada, uh, a lot of the, the local providences just don't want that. One of the things that we've really observed in the last five months since you all have a new president is that we don't watch American news as much anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, you hear about some of those uh, cable networks, their, uh, their ratings are slipping because no one's watching the same way. Is it a relief now that it's been five or six months, regardless of a pro Trump or anti Trump? Um, uh, I'm not worried about that stuff, political allegiance, but is it at least decompressed in general in the news cycle versus the way it was a year ago? You know, it's weird because when I was doing the nights, we, there was always a political something to talk about. And then the election happened and then the inauguration. So I had a couple of months there and I did notice there wasn't as much in the way of political stories coming out. So there's a couple of different ways you can look at that. But for me, at least moving to daytime and doing more locally focused topics, it was almost like that stuff was starting to filter itself out to begin with. Like, I'll, I'll read the stories and I'll look at what's going on. And there's definitely not as much attention given to this White House from a critical standpoint. They are definitely much more friendly to this White House. So you don't see a lot of the uh, scandalous or whatever type of articles that are out there. And I think that, um, you know, probably plays into a, a, a grander scheme of how these two presidents were treated by the media. One hated the media and the media hated him. And then there's this one who wants to be friendly to the media. And a lot of the reporters probably have connections to the White House. So they're probably a little bit more friendlier that way. So, you know, the, the temperature and the uh, they, they simmered down a little bit in the White House side. And that kind of backed off the. Uh, the the journalists. So, yeah, it's weird not seeing as much coming out of the White House. You do see things, but at least from my personal standpoint, I don't feel any different. I, I don't know about you when it comes to news. It's almost like a bank teller looks at money. So if you're standing there and, you know, you're, you're dishing out money all day, you think to yourself, wow, you know, it's it's like, wow, wouldn't that be great if I can just pocket all this money? But you're, when you're a bank teller, you don't think that the money's just a commodity. And I, I feel like doing radio news becomes a commodity. So you can look at it, you can count it, you can recognize what it is and its value, but you're just dishing it out and then yep. it goes somewhere else. And then you're looking for the next person. I get that. That's true. I absolutely get that. I find that it's, um, I always look at why, why, what is the, what is the outcome that we're missing? Right. Whenever these things happen, like Trump's rally this weekend. Okay. Well, why, why would he do that today? 
And same thing with the news and the kind of news that comes out on a Friday afternoon. What are they trying to slide out on a Friday afternoon when they're nobody will notice because they're going into the weekend? And I like to dig into that end of it. That's probably where I get the most curious with the news. I like it. Well, to me, that's the stepping stone to some pretty grand conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. That's a very fair I ball. love it. Ryan Recker is in St. Louis. He's with KMOX, uh, was our weekly partner as we used to do the satellite link up, but he's a daytime guy now. And uh, we do look forward to touching base, Ryan, and finding out what's going on in your world and saying hello again soon. It's nice to see you. Uh, I think it's so great that you invited me to do this. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.